Price, that's the number one technical indicator. You do best by investing for the longer term. If you can't explain what the business is doing, then that is a huge red flag. Some technological change is going to put you out of business. It really is a genuinely extraordinary situation. Welcome back. I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. Rob Arnott is the founder and chairman of Research Affiliates. As of September 2020, $145 billion in assets are managed worldwide using investment strategies developed by Arnott's firm. Having pioneered several unconventional portfolio strategies that are now widely applied, including the fundamental index investment approach, Rob has earned a reputation as one of the world's most provocative practitioners, challenging conventional wisdom at every turn. Prior to founding research affiliates, Rob managed two asset management firms, and as chairman of First Quadrant LP, he built the company into a world-renowned quantitative asset management house. We discuss Rob's prolific research, his insatiable appetite for new ideas, and how to apply his theories to 2021's global stock markets. Welcome to the podcast, Rob. It's great to have you with us. So firstly, whereabouts are you in the world? Where are you based? Currently, I'm in Miami Beach. Um, uh, I live in Miami Beach. Business is based in Newport Beach, California, but California's taxes have gotten insane. So (laughs) uh, I work out of Miami Beach. Yeah, sure. Were you able to have some form of Christmas or New Year's celebration? Actually, we did. Um, uh, We went the week before Christmas to the Great Smoky Mountains in uh, Tennessee and masks, social distancing, but fine dining and spectacular views. Uh, Good fun. And then we went to visit a friend of mine who celebrated his 50th birthday on New Year's Eve in Houston. And... uh, there were a lot of people without masks and without social distancing because Texas is not cracking down the way California is, but uh, it's been a few days and I seem to be fine. <laughs> yeah. Good. Okay. Good news. Yeah. It's uh, uh, the lockdown is in full force here in, here in London. So uh, yeah. quite yeah. very quiet Christmases over here, unfortunately. You uh, have but- a new version that spreads very fast and it's made its way over here. I understand it spreads fast but it's not as lethal. Um, yes, yeah, that's that's my understanding too. Um, so, I mean, hopefully the 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 new vaccines just work on all variations, yeah. and then yeah, and then we're set. Um, okay, well, uh, let's just jump straight in by discussing a theme that seems to sort of transcend your career, I suppose, and perhaps even even your success. It seems you've often looked to bridge the gap between academia, so theory, investment theory and real-life sort of financial market application. Um, and, I, and I wondered whether that has enabled you to challenge conventional wisdom, and, and perhaps it's uh, kind of facilitated the pioneering of new techniques uh, that, that has been a, a kind of marker of your career today. Mm-hmm. Well, um, yeah, I have focused a lot of my attention on gaps between academic theory and the real world. Um, that's been an anchor for me. Uh, what we find is, and this saying goes all the way back to the 1880s, uh, there's uh, uh, 
in theory, there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice there is. <laughs> and uh, to say it is to state what is a self-evident truism. And yet you have a lot of people anchoring on uh, theory, markets are efficient, um, the return should correlate uh, directly or should be directly linked to the beta. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the sources of capital, whether from bonds or from stocks, shouldn't matter, Miller Medigliani and so forth. And you can test all of these and they all test to be false. Mm. Um, so you have academics arguing that the tests aren't conclusive. And uh, to me, there's really just a common sense question. <clears throat> Does it make sense that markets should be perfectly efficient? No, we're human beings. Does it make sense that uh, return should correlate with risk? Yes. But with beta, not as clear. Uh, I've long thought that the academic world um, would have fared much better in describing the way markets work if they'd coined the expression fear premium instead of risk premium. Is there a fear, fear premium in buying Tesla at today's prices? Well, no, there's more of a fear of missing out. So there's no reason it wouldn't be priced at a negative risk premium because fear of missing out absolutely trumps fear of downside risk for most investors in Tesla. Um, and so the anomalies that we've identified, that the academic world has identified, would all have been, almost all, would have been predicted and expected and utterly unsurprising if we'd called it a fear premium. We didn't. So uh, these gaps between theory and practice are legion. Um, many are persistent. And for those who have the curiosity to dive in and explore them, there's lots of opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess that uh, sort of willingness to challenge the status quo or, or as I said, conventional wisdom uh, is something that does does seem to sort of uh, characterize at least uh, your career in the research that I've done. I, w I wonder whether that's um, firstly a, a, a reputation that pleases you. Is that something that you're happy with or not? Um, I'm perfectly content with it. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Early days in my career, um, I, I'm just very curious. Mm -hmm. uh, if I hear something that's conventional wisdom, I often will think, gee, has anyone tested that? And often the answer is no. Yeah. Conventional wisdom is simply accepted because it's conventional and seems intuitive. Um, and then you dive in and test it, and often it is true, and often it isn't. So when I publish a paper that suggests that conventional wisdom is wrong, um, it stirs controversy. It um, provokes in some people outright anger. And that's something early in my career I had trouble understanding. I, my feelings were actually hurt by people becoming angry that I found something that uh, they thought shouldn't be. Uh, I remember writing a paper entitled Death of the Risk Premium in the year 2000. And somebody came up to me about five years later at a conference and I said, how are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm fine. And by the way, I, I want you to know I don't hate you anymore. And I thought, <laughs> what? <laughs> wow. And he, he said, when you came out with Death of the Risk Premium, 
you challenge the foundation of everything I believe and everything I built my career on. And so I was angry. And in retrospect, you were right. And uh, had I read the piece with more of an open mind, uh, it might have saved me some pain. But what I find is, again and again, when I do research that is provocative, it does make some people angry. And I've grown accustomed to that. And no, that part of it doesn't please me at all. But I've learned to roll with it. It's not a problem. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I was looking your, on your website uh, prior to the call to, I guess, get an understanding of what of what Research Affiliates, the company that you founded, does, but also get a sense of what this contrarian, I guess, philosophy and this uh, kind of willingness to challenge the status quo actually means. And uh, there was one figure that jumped out to me, and that was as of September 30th, 2020, uh, $145 billion in assets uh, are managed worldwide using investment strategies developed by research affiliates. So that, yeah. that to me, would give some credence, I suppose, to, to kind of this contrarian philosophy yeah. and, 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 and your strategies and the techniques that you're espousing uh, on your website. But kind of what, what's your take on that? Well, firstly, it does, it does suggest that some of these ideas resonate, that people do find it find them interesting and are happy to embrace them. Uh, our reputation is mainly founded on global asset allocation, most of which we do through PIMCO, and uh, developing the fundamental index concept, which is offered through FTSE, through Legal in General, through uh, Schwab, through BlackRock, through SSGA, through Nomura Securities, and so forth. The list goes on. Uh, there's about a half dozen uh, distribution partners who have at least 10 billion invested in these strategies and some ranging as high as 30 to 40 billion. Um, so the ideas do resonate. We do have a value bias. Uh, our work is anchored on the notion that an investment should have some sort of fundamental value to it, should mean revert towards that value. And so a lot of our work is built on a foundation of mean reversion. Now, 2020 was the single worst year for value strategies in my career. Uh, it was daunting. And there's two ways to look at that. One is, what are we doing wrong? And the other is, is this an extraordinary opportunity? So we spent a lot of the year studying what we were doing and asking, is there something fundamentally different? Uh, came to the conclusion there really isn't. All that happened was expensive assets got more expensive, cheap assets got cheaper, and the relative valuation multiples of the two spread apart by a larger margin than the underperformance of value. So that tells me the value effect is alive and well. It worked in 2020, except that value got cheaper by a wider margin than the outperformance of the underlying fundamentals. And so that tells me, stay the course. This is an extraordinary time to be a value investor. Yeah, okay, well, so I guess the question that pops into my head then is whether you expect that trend to continue into 2021, for example? Um, 
I kind of doubt it. I mean, anything is possible. But last year, looking at just the U.S., for instance, uh, Russell value by this September 2nd, mm-hmm. the low point, had underperformed Russell growth by 4,100 basis points in eight months. You have to go back to 1931 to find a dispersion between growth and value remotely that large. And even that wasn't as big as this one. Now, there were catalysts, of course. The COVID lockdowns were massively beneficial to the companies that were already expensive, that were introducing new technologies, changing the way we um, communicate, the way we buy and sell product, the way we interact socially. And so they were beautifully positioned for COVID and arguably beautifully positioned for a post-COVID world, given that behaviors will have changed materially in to some measure permanently. But at what price? (laughs) And therein lies the challenge. Uh, The other thing shocking about the COVID situation is how remarkably few of the value companies went bust in the context of COVID. Um, The underperformance of value was anchored partly on growth being better positioned for a post-COVID world and partly based on fears that, that value stocks with their slower growth, with their skinnier profit margins, that many of them would go bust. But the spread between the two actually reached a point of relative valuation where to return to historic norms, you would have had to see over half of the value stocks go bust. 10%, maybe 20% is a more realistic expectation. And thus far, it's been well under 10%. Okay, great. So there's a few points there that I want to return to, particularly the fundamentally based indexes and uh, some stuff on your asset allocation as well. But before we do that, I want to get a sense of your career to date and particularly, I guess, for those people that that are unfamiliar with your work and kind of how you got to where you are today. So let's let's take it back right to when you graduated from University of California with a degree, I believe, in economics, applied mathematics and computer science. Yes, three majors. Um, So that, to me anyway, seems a useful grounding for a future career in the investment management industry. Is that fair? Is that that how it could be? That is fair. That is exactly what I had in mind. Um, I was interested in quantitative investing before the term quant had been coined. Um, And I went to work as a quant before the word quant had been coined. It seemed to me that, well... Uh, Backing up the clock to when I was um, 16 or 18, I was debating between going for a career in astrophysics or finance. Mm. Both of them are mathematically oriented. Both of them have lots of interesting nuances. But the difference is um, in astrophysics, if you want to make a difference, if you want to be a world-class astrophysicist, you'd better be among the 50 best mathematicians on the planet. And I'm not. I I was a pretty good mathematician, but I'm not that good. On the other hand, in investments, scientific method wasn't used. It was all heuristics and rules of thumb and 
a little bit of valuation methodologies, but not very scientific. And so I reasoned that by applying scientific method in investment management, I'd have an opportunity to make a difference. And it actually has turned out pretty well. Yeah, yeah, well, I'd say. Um, and you've, you've gone on to publish well over 100 uh, academic papers in, in refereed journals. Uh, I read on your website, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. So what's driving this prolific research or writing career? Is, is that a passion of yours? It is. Um, I'm an inveterate scribbler. I, when I do research, I like to write it up. And then I like to expose it to the crucible of public scrutiny. Uh, refereed journals, anybody can print a research report. And we've written lots of them. I've probably personally written two or 300 research reports over the years. Um, but those aren't vetted by peer review. And those aren't subject to um, uh, overt uh, uh, challenge by the outside marketplace. When you publish a peer-reviewed paper, if there's something wrong with it, you hear about it fast. And um, uh, you even see papers withdrawn. Uh, Out of 130 or 140 papers, I've never been pressed to withdraw any paper. Uh, They've all been stood up to that scrutiny. So I find the scrutiny interesting. Uh, The feedback I get often creates more questions uh, that can be fun to explore and can lead to new research. So uh, we share almost all of our ideas. Uh, Not all of them. If some of them are very easy to replicate and would therefore be arbitraged away, no. But there's enough uh, ego in our business that if you publish a good idea, a lot of people have their own ideas and they're anchoring on their own ideas and they're reluctant to say, Oh, here's another good idea. Let me embrace it. So you do have time to um, build that reputation and to earn alpha from ideas that you've published. So we're pretty open about what we do. Not 100%, but 90 plus percent. And uh, we're happy to share our research, both to build the reputation of the company, uh, to build awareness of our ideas, um, could even view it as a soft form of marketing that that people become aware of our ideas and think, oh gosh, I want to invest with these people. Um, but it's fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I certainly urge our listeners to to visit the website. Uh, that insights drop down list. That section of the website is really, really interesting. Some fascinating articles on there. Um, and so. To kind of dig into the process of research then, uh, you're kind of researching uh, ideas, techniques, philosophies, I guess almost on a daily basis. So what about that process is it that you enjoy so much? I just love the idea of exploring the data, um, exploring uh, widely respected and widely accepted views and uh, questioning them. Yeah, uh, asking, uh, okay, is is this actually true? And like I said earlier, often it's true and often it's not. Uh, the other thing that's interesting is so much of this industry is based not on scientific method, but on finding academic or data-based support for your thesis. In other words, let's say I believe that uh, low price to book value 
is a great way to invest. Then I search out data looking for evidence to support that. That's not scientific method. Scientific method is all about falsifiability. Um, testing your ideas to prove where you're wrong. Very few people, even in the quant community uh, in finance, start with the premise that, gee, my idea might be flawed. Let me find holes in it. Let me poke holes in it. And that's, that's exciting, and it leads to deeper insights. The other thing that's awfully common is data mining. You look for relationships that, that work beautifully. Uh, there was one paper uh, a couple of years ago where somebody just set the computer free on the CompuStat database and said, uh, uh, build models using whatever data you can find in the CompuStat database and uh, report back how effective those models are. Tested 2.2 million different models and the top performer was something that uh, compared, I think it was three-year lagged book value, um, uh, price to book value with four-year lead um, uh, rents, mm -hmm. rental obligations of a business four years mm -hmm. hence. Now that's pure rubbish. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it would be an idiotic model. But their point was they got a T-statistic of seven yeah. by letting the computer come up with and test two million models. So um, one of the things that I think is very wrong with our business is the business of developing a model, then using past data to tweak it, to make it better and better on past data and to assume that that makes it better in the future. Yeah. The more you tweak it, in all likelihood, the better, of course, the better it'll work historically. But I would argue the worse it's likely to work in the future because it'll be pulling you into strategies and ideas that have enjoyed a tailwind of rising valuation and are likely to disappoint in the future. This is why we see lots of competitors who engage in data mining exercises who um, market their products based on those back tests, use the back test to improve the back test, mm -hmm. and then their live results, um, to use a technical term, suck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that well-known technical term. Um, a lot of those ideas completely resonated with me. I mean, we, we've spoken to a lot of people that I guess have had some short-term success out of basing strategies on historical data but i guess it's that longevity that you're never going to get if you are if you do continually sort of yeah. base your strategies on events and data that's previously happened um, that that makes a lot of sense and yeah. um i want to kind of focus more explicitly on research affiliates mm -hmm. uh now if if we can because I guess, you know, if we're talking about your career, it's obviously a big marker in that. Uh, I think you founded the company in 2002. Yeah. Um, so for someone that, you know, just learned about the business in, in doing the research uh, before the call, perhaps you can explain to me your thinking behind setting up the company. Was there a vision for research affiliates when you first started out? Uh, there was. Uh, I've been in quantitative investing since 1977. 
and I've built uh, at least three other organizations involved in institutional asset management, contributed to the development of a couple of others. And it's an exciting endeavor. What I did find was that if you have a parent company, as soon as you start delivering profits that are enough to make a difference to their bottom line, they start to dig in and ask you to um, uh, justify your expenditures and things like that and, and meddle. And mm-hmm. so I, I found that having an external owner, especially an external owner that was publicly traded, um, they can't help but meddle and uh, question management decisions and the growth would be spectacular and then it would plateau. Um, This happened again and again. Uh, So I decided if I'm ever going to start a business, um, now's the time to do it. I actually had dinner with Jack Bogle, had a delightful conversation with him because I was almost exactly the same age that he was when he started Vanguard. And, um, that helped to give me the confidence that even if, even though I was in my late forties, uh, it, it would be fine to do this. Now I was running first quadrant at the time. <clears throat> so I had a conflict of interest. So what I did is with, with research affiliates is to say, we will license our ideas to others. We won't directly manage money. And that way first quadrant could be first adopter or First Squadron's parent company could be first adopter. Well, that never happened, but um, we did wind up really gaining some traction, always giving First Quadrant right of first refusal. Um, And uh, then two years later, after two years of running both enterprises side by side, I stepped down from First Quadrant at a point where they didn't need me as much anymore. The passing of the baton had been finished and research affiliates was starting to really take off. So um, it's been a wonderful adventure. Uh, We are asset managers who don't manage assets. We develop strategies and ideas. We license them through others. There's a big element of trust there. If you come up with something as simple as fundamental index and then take it to somebody and say, would you like to license this from us? One response would be, well, I've read your article. I can replicate it. Um, and so we take patents on our ideas, not for purposes of picking fights, but for purposes of just putting a stake in the ground and saying, please be respectful of our ideas. And the investment management business actually is a far more ethical business than its reputation. So we've had very few people outright take our ideas and run with them. And that's awfully gratifying. So the $145 billion that you mentioned is probably two-thirds or three-fourths of the total assets run using variants of our ideas. Some people borrow from our, our work and integrate it into their own, and that's okay. And others want to work directly with us to get the uh, most focused versions of what we've been working on and to have first dibs on our next best idea. And so that's, that's gone very well. Um, it's, it's been ex- an exciting adventure, as I said earlier. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And uh, it, it struck me then, I guess you're, you're kind of relying on, I, I imagine you get a lot of repeat custom, as it were, because obviously if mm-hmm. their strategy or 
um, a practice performs well, they're going to come to you for the next big idea. But approaching new new customers, mm-hmm. new business, how, how do you substantiate the the performance that you're offering them? Do you offer them kind of back testing results? Like how, how does it work to get new customers on board? Well, we will show back tests, but with all the caveats and showing them why our back tests are more believable than others because we don't data mine. We don't tweak them. We start with a premise. We test the premise. And if it works, that's it. We're not going to tweak it in the back test. Now, we may tweak it in the way we implement it, but that's less to improve the back test than to improve the implementability because a lot of back tests are based on you wind up putting 20% of your portfolio into assets that are so illiquid that you could never buy them. And it looks great, but you couldn't implement it. And so our, our focus is on doing it right. And we'll go to existing affiliates and say, we're working on this idea. Would you have an interest in launching product based on it? And if the answer is no, then we'll go to other organizations that have expressed interest in working with us and we'll say, uh, here's a fun idea that we're working on. Would you like to begin a relationship on, on this idea? And uh, that business model has served us very well. Uh, if you're licensing ideas, you dare not be greedy. Uh, at least two-thirds of the revenues, and sometimes as much as 80% of the revenues, uh, stay with the distribution partner, because without distribution, our ideas are useless. And so we get a, a skinny fee on what turns out to be a large asset base. We don't need call centers. We don't need portfolio performance reporting software and teams. Um, we don't need all of the things that a regular asset manager would need. We need world-class R&D. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. I want to move us on to fundamentally based indexes. It's something that we touched on at the top of the interview. Um, Mm -hmm. And I believe essentially it's something that research affiliates and yourself have been accredited with the the pioneering of of that technique. Um, It was you guys that, that researched and pioneered that. So... For those people that aren't aware of fundamentally based indexes, I'm sure they will have touched them in some shape or form, but perhaps you can give mm-hmm. us a succinct sort of definition of, of what that term means. Sure. If you back up the clock to 1957, when S&P introduced the S&P 500, let's suppose somebody on their new products team or committee said, why are we waiting why are we talking about weighting these 500 companies in proportion to their market value? If you do that, the stocks that are trading at the highest multiples, um, the most expensive companies, the most popular and beloved companies are going to get most of the weight. Why don't we weight it on the size of the business? Um, or suppose in 1954, when Fortune magazine came up with the Fortune 500, choosing the 500 largest businesses based on the sales of the company. Suppose their new products team had said, hey, let's create an index. We'll create an index of these 500 companies 
weighted by their sales. It'll be an index that tracks the macro economy. And then S&P comes along and creates an index that tracks the market. Um, if a new products committee was given a choice, do you want a strategy that mirrors the look and composition of the macro economy or when the mirrors the look and composition of the market and puts most of your money in the most expensive companies? Um, there's a very good likelihood that the committee would say, let's do the fundamental weight. And so um, it's kind of shocking to me that the idea wasn't introduced way back in the 50s or 60s. Uh, but in the 1960s, combination of efficient market hypothesis and capital asset pricing model, which both came along in the 60s, EMH said, don't waste your time picking stocks. Markets are efficient. The prices are correct. Uh, however you weight your index is irrelevant. So why not just own the market? Why make bets relative to the market? And then capital asset pricing model said the market portfolio is the optimal portfolio. I'm over, I'm simplifying a little bit, but basically that's the message. And so the academic community went off and spent 40 years basically saying markets are efficient. We already came up with, S&P already came up with the optimal market portfolio and it can't be beat on a risk adjusted basis. So why try? So when we tested the idea in 2003, we started with sales based kind of a fortune magazine variant of 500. We looked for the 500 largest publicly traded companies measured by sales and weighted them by sales. And we took the analysis back to the early 70s, so about a 30-year, 32, 33-year back test. And to our astonishment, it beat the S&P by 2.4% per year. So we then asked the question, well, gosh, if waiting by sales works so well, how about other metrics? We tried waiting by book value, waiting by profits, waiting by five-year smooth profits, waiting by dividends, um, waiting by number of employees, each of them a fundamental measure of the size of the business from one perspective or another. And what we found is they all work about the same, one and a half to two and a half percent value added per annum. And that was our first aha moment that cap weighting pulls down your returns because you're automatically putting most of your money in overpriced companies. Now think about it this way. Some companies are overpriced, some are underpriced. We don't know which ones they are. Yeah. So if you capitalization weight, the overvalued companies that are destined to underperform will be overweight in your portfolio relative to fair value weighting. Most of your money will be in companies that are destined to underperform. That argument has been pointed out since the 1950s as a critique of indexation and the comeback of indexers has always been, yeah, that's obviously true, but so what? You can't tell me which is overpriced and which is underpriced. But if you weight companies by some metric other than price, sales, book value, dividends, dividends plus buybacks, um, profits, cash flow, number of employees, all of a sudden, a company that's overvalued 
might be overweighted or underweighted. The errors cancel. And Jack Trainer, one of the originators of capital asset pricing model in 2005, wrote a, a paper saying why fundamental index works. And he basically said, you randomize the errors and you're going to add um, um, sigma squared times a, a measured relative to companies mispricing relative to fair value. Now, you don't know what the fair value is, but you have some vague idea of what the dispersion is. And so by going through that, he, he came up to the conclusion that uh, fundamental index should win by upwards of 2% a year before trading costs. Fortunately, the turnover is very low. Now, one last point before we move on. Uh, if you're taking companies that are popular, beloved, and expensive, and you're saying, well, thank you for those lovely gains, but the company's size is only this. So I'm going to take those profits and reweight you back down. And a value stock, deeply out of favor, very cheap. Fundamental index says, I get it. The company is a lousy company, but it's in the price. The price already reflects that. So thank you for the deep discount. I'm going to top you back up to your economic footprint. Now notice you're taking the growth stocks, reweighting them down and the value stocks, reweighting them up. So you have a stark, reliable value tilt. It's a dynamic value tilt. If the market's paying a small premium for growth, you get a small tilt. If it's paying a huge premium for growth as it is today, you have a huge value tilt. So it takes on a big value tilt when value is at its cheapest. Long way of saying that it is a value strategy measured relative to the market, just as the market is a growth strategy relative to the macroeconomy. And it's a dynamic value strategy where the value tilt changes over time. So when we compare results with the value indexes, we find that it tracks better with that than with the broad market, no surprise there. And the value add is relentless. So that's what's very exciting about this. Now in a year like 2020, we're gonna be miles behind the market, but reliably ahead of the value indexes. When value snaps back, as we think is reasonably likely, reasonably near term, perhaps already happening, um, we would expect to continue to beat value when value is winning. And so beat the market by a bigger margin than value wins by. Yeah. Okay, absolutely. So I guess the next question for me then is capitalization weighted products and indices are still out there. They're relatively sort of prevalent throughout the industry. Mm -hmm. So kind of in light of all the, the, the kind of really intuitive, easy to understand reasoning that you've just given us there, why, why are they so prevalent still? Well, firstly, they're easy. Secondly, their performance has been extraordinary, but they've been extraordinary partly because it's been a growth dominated market. Mm -hmm. uh, you go back to, um, if you're using price to book value, for instance, yep. the last peak in relative performance for value relative to growth was at the end of 2006. So you've had a 13 and two thirds year drawdown for value relative to growth. If you use price to earnings, it's more like a seven year drawdown. Price to sales, more like a four or five year drawdown. Um, Raffi to cap weight, uh, blended metrics using um, sales, profits, book value, and dividends, uh, a three and a half year drawdown. 
So um, it's been a nasty period for value, which plays to the benefit of conventional cap-weighted indexing. When I first rolled the idea out in 2005, I remember the reaction of the indexing community was, um, in some cases, outrage that I would have the temerity to call it an index. And I would point out that the Oxford on a bridge doesn't mention cap weighting in the definition of index. Um, so uh, my response also was indexing is not, if this is smart beta, indexing is not stupid beta. Indexing is neutral beta. The stupid beta is performance chasing, buying Tesla at today's prices. Um, the smart beta is contra-trading against the market's most extreme bets. And so you, the indexers, are going to benefit from fundamental indexing being there because basically our competition is the active managers who do a lousy job of, well, for example, the last 10 years, the vast majority of value managers have underperformed the value index, let alone the market. And Rafi has reliably outperformed the value index uh, far more years than not. And over rolling three and five year spans, the reliability uh, gets to be extremely, extremely high. So the, um, the main uh, folks who are vulnerable to our idea are the active managers, not the indexers. Indexing is going to continue to grow. Um, at some stage, it will stub its toe because the indexes are themselves active strategies. Who, cho who chooses when Tesla goes into the S&P 500? It entered the top 500 by market cap, I think back in 2013. Right, uh, yeah. And uh, it was added in December. Yeah. Uh, biggest block trade in history uh, to get it all into index funds. At the top price tick for Tesla in history. Uh, that block trade was at 6.95. So indexing does have a buy high, sell low methodology inherent in index construction, and it does actively choose to add stocks reliably when they are popular, beloved, and expensive, and kick out stocks reliably when they're out of favor, uh, have underperformed, and are cheap. So. Um, uh, there are problems with cap-weighted indexation, but if you want to match the market, you do come reasonably close by using cap-weighted indexes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I want to kind of pick up on that point about Tesla. I mean, there, there have been a few sort of massive outperformers this year. I mean, well, sorry, last year, well, now we're in 2021, of course. Mm -hmm. So just five companies, if we, if we use your example, the, uh, the S&P 500, just five companies accounted for I believe over twenty five percent of the S and P, twenty seven at the peak I believe. Right. Okay. So five companies. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's it's crazy, and um, COVID. I mean, at least amongst maybe the retail community, and I think it I think it goes beyond that. Seems to have almost been a trigger point for the un, the unbundling of these indexes. People wanting just the top performers, the top five, the top ten, whatever it may be. So well, I just wonder how you. Well, yeah, perhaps you can. We all want the best performers, but the best performers of the past? Yeah. And the performances behind us? No, we want the best performers in the future. And that'll be a different roster of names most of the time. Not always. You do get these momentum markets, 2000, 
20 was, was one of them for at least the first two thirds of the year where what had performed best on a three to five year basis continued to do very well. We've seen some retracing of that, uh, fairly significant retracing of since September. Um, but uh, everybody wants wonderful performance. The thing is, um, past is not prologue. And it's so tempting, whether you're talking about choosing stocks or choosing strategies or choosing mutual funds, to look at the past results. Uh, I've often asked audiences, um, how many of you in this room, when you look at the available strategies for your 401k, for your defined contribution plan, how many of you scan down that list to look for strategies that have performed badly over the last three, five, and 10 years? And then ask the question, are these, is something fundamentally wrong with these strategies or are they just abnormally cheap? And maybe I should go into those. And usually out of 100 people, you'll get maybe two or three who raise their hands and say, yeah, that's what I do. Um, my guess is of the two or three, there's probably only one who really does that. So being a contrarian is very uncomfortable because you're, whatever is newly cheap got there by inflicting pain and losses. And that's um, uh, hard to embrace. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I want to move us on to that sort of contrarian philosophy then. We've, we've touched on it already, but I'm just conscious uh, of not spending too much of your time. So um, your, your approach, I mean, across all your strategies, be that fundamental indexing, like we've discussed, or mm-hmm. asset allocation, your more sort of tactical solutions uh, that hopefully we'll get on to in a second. They seem to embed a, a disciplined contrarian philosophy. Yeah. So that, I guess, is something from the outset that you were keen to implement across all your strategies. Is that fair? Absolutely right. And contrarian investing um, adds value in probably six out of 10 years, um, but it's uncomfortable in 10 out of 10 years. There, yeah. That's yeah. the challenge. Yeah. Uh, if you look at fundamental index, you it looks like a broad market portfolio with a distinct value tilt. If you look at the trading, the stocks that we're buying in any given quarter reliably are companies that have performed really badly. And a, um, an intuitive investor would look at that and say, oh my goodness, these companies really are awful. Why on earth would I want to own them? And then you're selling whatever's most extravagantly expensive and beloved. So it's a very uncomfortable process but it works most of the time. Yeah, absolutely. And how do those principles then go on to inform your, your tactical asset allocation strategy? Perhaps you can give us you know, an example of, of how these, uh, this approach or these strategies uh, help the sort of management of one's portfolio. Right. Well, in both cases, uh, relative valuation is the dominant single component of the process. Um, in the case of... Um, uh, fundamental index and its variants. We have an ESG and a carbon-free fundamental index. We have multi-factor RAFI, which is a multi-factor strategy which anchors on fundamental weighting. It's the only multi-factor strategy that does so. Um, with asset allocation, oh, and by the way, with all of those, we stage our trades in over time, meaning that if there's momentum, 
we're going to wind up trading slower out of a company that's on a roll, trade slower into a company that's tanking. So we do allow momentum to inform our trading a little bit. The same thing holds true for our asset allocation work. We ask, what's cheap? And whatever's cheap, let's boost our allocation there and let's do it deliberately, uh, patiently. And again, uh, if the asset class is on a roll, you trim it gradually. If the asset class is in free fall, you add to it gradually, patiently. And the result is a contrarian asset allocation approach. Now, we're best known for our work with PIMCO and the All Asset Fund suite. Um, but uh, uh, in general, it's fair to say that uh, this kind of contrarian asset allocation approach works beautifully over, for the patient investor over long periods of time. Now, the work that we do with PIMCO centers on what we call third pillar markets, the diversifying markets away from mainstream stocks and bonds. They've had a terrible run the last seven years. We've done well relative to the third pillar, but um, it was tough to beat classic 60-40 domestic U.S. stocks and bonds, uh, uh, less true in the U.K. But bottom line is, uh, if you took our third pillar asset allocation work and married it to simple passive 60-40, putting 20 or 30% of your money here, 60 or 80% of your money in passive 60-40, the results would have been in the top decile of all global TAA managers. So the strategy does work beautifully. You need to be very wary of anchoring on Mainstream asset classes, which get way too much allocation, sure, they go through periods of time, like since 2013, where they starkly outperform diversifying markets, but they also go through periods of time when they get savaged relative to mainstream markets. And you need to be wary about anchoring on past performance. Uh, how many investors look around the world and say, hey, what asset classes have performed worst in the last decade? Maybe I should top that up slowly, gradually, and average my way in. So that's, that's our approach to asset allocation. It's very similar to our way of thinking about uh, investing in fundamental index. Um, and today, with the U.S. stock market at a Schiller P.E. ratio of 35 times the 10-year smooth earnings, with bond yields at near record low levels, how much return do you really think you're going to get from classic 60-40 investing? Those diversifying markets are cheap relative to mainstream markets. If anyone thinks diversification is a bad idea because it struggled in recent years, think again. Uh, the fact that it has struggled is part of what makes it a bargain. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I've, I've read a lot of the uh content about the death of the the 60 40 sort of traditional portfolio so so and certainly you play into that but you you mentioned a problem there anchoring and that's you kind of uh, very nicely explained like why investors should be looking out for that and and uh looking to kind of sidestep it but an another issue and a problem that you highlighted in one of your recent articles i think it was actually only published earlier this month was mm -hmm. now casting and this was this yeah. was a term that i've i've never heard uh, before 
uh, and, it, and it was fascinating to understand what it means. But perhaps first you can just explain what it is to the listeners. Before we dive into that, just one observation on asset allocation. Oh, of course. Um, we have an interactive website called Asset Allocation Interactive. Mm-hmm. And if you Google Asset Allocation Interactive, uh, the first non-ad that pops up is a direct link to our work in that space. That's gone viral. We've had, uh, I think it's approaching 2 million distinct independent hits to that website in the last five years or so since we launched it. Basically, the goal is to get people to shift their attention from focusing on past returns to focusing on future returns. Now, how do you gauge future returns? What's the income that the asset class throws off? What's the growth in that income? And is the asset class cheap or expensive relative to its historic norms? Assume a little bit of mean reversion. And out of that, we come up with forecasts for 10-year future returns on 130 different asset classes. So we all love to see forecasts that pan out and turn out to be pressing. Most of what we see is something that we would call now casting. It's predicting the future based on what's already happened. Yeah. So COVID has done wonderful things for the tech community. So a forecast based on that saying COVID has done wonderful things, setting a foundation for Amazon, for Apple, for the list goes on and on and on. And these companies are well positioned for the future. It sounds reasonable because what you're doing is advocating what's already performed well, but it's not a forecast. It's a, a fake forecast based on predicting what's already happened. Now, the reason that it is so prevalent is that people will remember forecasts, good or bad, and a nowcast is always correct in retrospect. So if you make a forecast, these tech stocks have been on a roll for all kinds of legitimate reasons. They're trading at nosebleed valuations, watch out, the coming decade will filter out the good from the bad. There will be two or three of them that are still in the top 10, 10 years from now, but most of them won't be. So watch out, pair your exposure because these companies are priced for perfection. All right, if I make that forecast and if six months from now you look back and it was wrong, you'll remember that forecast even if it was right 10 years later. If you forecast what's already happened, people will look back and say, oh, that guy was right. So now casting, basically, when you look at the newspaper, just if it's something forecasting something that may happen in the future, ask the question, has this already happened? If it's already happened, it's a now cast. And you might as well just toss that, that article out because there's no new insights there that aren't already known to the marketplace and aren't already discounted in today's prices. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess the reason it resonated so well for me is that I, I imagine sort of market pundits that I see on, on Twitter and elsewhere, and I, I could imagine myself almost redacting sort of 80% of what they said because essentially, <laughs> uh, essentially that, that is what they're doing. They're, they're now casting. They're saying stuff that has already happened and sort of presenting it as a forecast. So 
Um, yeah. But yeah, that was a really fascinating idea and one that I wanted to get in before before we finish the interview. So that is the penultimate uh, section of our interview. The final one, which will only take sort of two minutes at most, is our quick fire questions. So this is just a light-hearted way to end the episode, I suppose, and you can answer, answer in as little as one sentence or, or even one word, if you like. In your opinion, then, for the first one, what is the top mistake investors make? Predicting the future by extrapolating the past. Buying what's, uh, what looks smart because it's gone up. Um, it is the most common mistake. It is the most costly mistake. Perfect. Okay, question two. Where do you go, for, I'm particularly interested to hear your thoughts on this one, but where do you go for investment or economic insights? Do you read any specific publishers, for example? Um, I do. I, I, I read Wall Street Journal and Financial Times uh, daily. Um, uh, it, you may be interested that I go straight to the um, uh, op-ed page first, yeah. then go back and look at the news. Um, the op-ed page usually identifies things that are uh, front and center of investors' attention today and viewing it with a bit of skepticism and saying, is this, na- is this an outcast? Is, yeah. Does this create opportunities to do the opposite? Very helpful. Uh, I love John Malden's work. It's free. Uh, I love Jim Bianco's work. It's not free. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so I, uh, I read quite a bit. I, I uh, read academic journals, but usually just uh, skimming, uh, looking at the abstract, and once every 10 papers, take a deeper dive. Sure. Okay, interesting. So third question, what is the most memorable moment from your career today? This is a tough one. Mm, market crash of 87. Um, I had just moved from an asset management firm that I'd built, TSA Capital Management, to Solomon Brothers, where mm-hmm. I was um, brought in as the global equity strategist. And I fairly quickly discovered I was uh, expected to produce reports on uh, equity strategy as long as they didn't disagree with Bob Solomon on equities or Henry Kaufman on bonds. <laughs> so it was an interesting um, uh, situation. And uh, watching the crash happen, uh, uh, the team at Solomon said, you know all the people in the asset allocation community, call them and talk to them about making a trade. And so I did. I reached out to 15, 20 different people, each running billions in asset allocation strategies with the message, um, the market is newly cheap. Um, uh, Bond yields have come down sharply in a single day. This is a time to begin averaging in to much larger equity allocations. And to my interest and surprise, Every last one of the people I called said, it's too tumultuous. We'll wait till things settle down. Well, by the time things settle down, the market will be much higher. And that is indeed what, um, what transpired. Yeah. Wow. Um, okay. So question four, a top tip for your younger self. Patience. Patience. Um, yeah. as, a, as a young Turk, I was always very impatient. 
I was always deeply frustrated when I encountered bureaucratic impediments or uh, skepticism because this uh, uh, this young guy was challenging conventional wisdom. And uh, I think the passage of time, I'm now 66, so I'm uh, ostensibly beyond retirement age, although I can't imagine ever retiring. Uh, the, uh, the thing that's changed most for me in the last 40 years is, is patience. Yeah. Okay. It helps as an investor too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that might even be one that we've been given before, certainly solid advice, particularly for people who are just starting out in their investment careers. Um, and for, for the last question, so this is a question we ask, uh, all of our guests, so I guess it's the opto question and it's, what is an investor's best source of alpha? And if I can narrow that down, hopefully explain it a little bit better. Where, where do you think the great investors derive their outperformance? Can you give us one thing, one factor perhaps? You will not have superior performance if you're doing the same things everyone else. Do something different. Now that, for me, that means being contrarian and buying what's deeply out of favor and unloved. Uh, for others, it could be doing deep dive research to identify trends that are missing from the market. But there's an Occam's razor on that one, too. If you find something that you think is a company beautifully positioned for the future and it's recently soared, ask the follow-on question, how much of my insight isn't already reflected in the share price? Um, be skeptical. What yeah. you hear 99% of the time, what you hear is, as investment ideas is already in the price. Absolutely. Um, okay, well, I think that's a perfect message to, to end the interview on. Uh, just leaves me to say thanks very much for giving us the time. It's been a real pleasure. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to Co-Fruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time.